What we're going to do is just go off the radio station, and I'll figure that out for another time. And um, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence today. Now, if I was emotionally immature, I might start swearing right now. And you're wondering, why in the world would I start swearing? What would be the cause of that? Well, I had a moment of frustration where I didn't have the right button pushed. I have a moment of frustration when uh, it felt like the, uh, the, the echo in my head was driving me nuts. And I hate when things don't go perfectly. And then I can't get my very own Facebook page to open up and do a live broadcast. So I'm doing it over the radio station, the 100.3 KDXI here at Dixie State University station. And the, uh, the, the, the problem is, is just everything isn't perfect. And sometimes emotionally uh, immature people, when things don't go perfectly their way or how they see the world ought to be, they freak out and they, they curse, they punch things, they throw things. And, and I know there's other reasons for, for stressing out and freaking out, but this, is, this would be an example of, of really trying to be emotionally uh, intelligent. We're going to talk about that today. And, and first disclosure, because you know, I've got to make sure that you understand that I do a little bit of insight stuff. I, I don't always behave emotionally mature. I don't always behave emotionally intelligent. Sometimes I completely freak out. And, and lose it, and other times I'm calm as a cucumber, and, and I manage myself through things pretty well. And so you'll probably be much like me, and maybe you'll have a little bit better in some things and not so good in other things, and that's what makes the world really go around with relationships. So I want to draw a picture for you, a word picture. Imagine in your household there's two of you that um, maybe are a little bit reactive to each other, and, and what you find is that... Um, one of you will say something that triggers the other one. Like, um, let's just say if I say to my wife something like, uh, hey, I've got to change all of our plans tonight and you have to cooperate because it's just going to throw things off if you don't. And, and let's say that triggers her if, like she's just this little, um, what do you call it when I do that? It's, uh, I'm, a, um, I'm a beck and call girl. You know, I just have to be your little beck and call girl. I don't ever have to have my own opinion. And, and then I can say, oh, my word, would you quit calling yourself a little beck and call girl? And would you quit, like, just quit not cooperating? Can you just be, and next thing you know, we're fighting because maybe both of us got a little bit snappy at each other. So in relationships, it only takes one person to turn the tidal wave, to turn the corner of, of how the discussion's going to go. And that would be the emotionally mature, the emotionally intelligent one in that moment. So let's say I do it incorrectly and I order my wife around and, and she says something to the effect of, sweetheart, I'd love to do that, but I want to sit with you and talk about how it's going to go to make sure it works with things that I've got planned tonight. And so she leads with sweetheart. She leads with a calming tone. She leads with what we call a soft startup and then explains to me some of her, her boundaries in a very kind, polite way. And then all of a sudden I'm calmed down because I don't feel like we're at war. She didn't battle back with a, a snide comment about Beck and call girl. I didn't have to defend myself. And even though I started it, now we're both fully involved. And have you ever found yourself like that, like fully involved in an argument that you feel like, you know, even if I started it by not doing it exactly right, do you have to go that far? And, and, and we get in these wars with each other. And, and what I challenge you to understand is that you both in every relationship, both of you have strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes the, your partner is going to be a little bit stronger in an area and they might come out and be more soft in the, in the, um, in the startup. And other times they come out and, and they do worse than you. And so 
use your strengths and lean on each other when you have a weakness. And that's called humility. It's called being able to let go and take a deep breath. Um, tonight, I had an appointment at five with a, a buddy of mine. And uh, we were going to go over some blogging stuff and some vlogging stuff. And, and all of a sudden, I realized I, I told him one hour off. And so I'm panicked. I'm texting him. And I get this voicemail back that said, hey, breathe, let go, go do your radio show. We'll worry about it after. See, he could have said, you jerk, you're not coming to the, I can't believe it. I set a whole hour aside for you and you're going to blow it off like that. And you tell me like one minute before it starts. And, and then I could have like got my feelings hurt, maybe snapped back. But instead, <clears throat> he took the emotionally intelligent route and just calmed the whole thing. And uh, must have had the wherewithal to do that, must have had the strength to do that, and had the time to do that. And so this is what we're talking about, is we're talking about becoming emotionally mature or emotionally intelligent today. We're going to spend about an hour on it, and there's 15 points. and That's a lot of points. You know, Ma Bell did this whole uh, um, research on how many strings or bits of information people could remember, and they determined between four and seven bits of information, somewhere in there, was about what people could recall. And, and if, you, if you start to teach or you start to ask people to, to learn or memorize things much beyond seven bits of information, uh, they're not going to remember. So you know, our phone numbers are three numbers and then four numbers, and that goes all the way back to this research. If, if people will memorize phone numbers much better in strings of three and four or seven numbers and and, uh, and, and then you can group them in threes and fours, and that makes it much easier to remember. And there's a time where all of you older people that are listening had 50, 60 phone numbers memorized, maybe up to 100 phone numbers memorized. <clears throat> and all those phone numbers were attached to a person's face, and you knew exactly what their number was, and you knew exactly what number to call. And it just was smooth. Now, you younger people have no idea what I'm talking about because you don't memorize phone numbers. You, uh, you hit... Um, like caricatures, you hit uh, speed dials, you hit uh, speed dial 11, speed dial 50. So you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's what I'm talking about is I'm giving you 15 bits of information and you'll probably remember half of them. So maybe what you do is pick the very best seven that you will use and make a commitment to yourself that you'll use them this week in between radio shows. So number one, the number one um, of information I would like you to understand about your emotional intelligence is it's completely different than your IQ, your intelligent quotient. So your intelligence quotient, that number that a lot of you hit 195, 105, a bunch of you out there are 125, a bunch of you out there are 90. There's these numbers that we get fixed to our intelligence called an IQ. An IQ is fixed based upon data. It's mathematical, it's knowledge-based, it's really quite black and white. And so your IQ is relatively fixed on how much logic you present with at any given time when taking an IQ test. Your emotional quotient, your emotional intelligence is vastly different. It's a flexibility skill. It's a skill that you grow into bigger numbers as you improve flexibility, as you improve your ability to let go, live in the moment, and negotiate well and respond well. And so emotional in intelligence, emotional, your emotional quotient will 
will flex and bend as you learn to flex and bend. And, and so that's why it's quite a bit different than intelligent. It's not, it's not based on a, a fixed number, a fixed object. It's based upon ability and it's based upon a flexibility and a flexible skill. And so recognizing your emotions and recognizing how to be integritous with your emotions is a key to your emotional intelligence. For example, um, if all I present with is anger, if I'm just mad all the time and, and somebody says, man, you're just mad all the time. You, you get mad over everything. And then you might start to think to yourself, Ooh, what am I, what am I covering? How many emotions am I covering with anger? Like, do I feel weak when I'm yippy skippy happy? So I tone it down with a little bit of frustration. Do I feel, um, scared to share fear, like too vulnerable. So whenever I feel afraid, I just get mad so that I scare the f- scary thing away. Uh, if I'm hurt, do I feel way too weak or soft or wimpy to admit that something hurt me physically or emotionally? So instead, I just get mad and storm away. If you're angry a lot, it's probably because your emotional IQ, your emotional quotient, emotional quotient is low and you're not really willing to step out into the abyss and share honestly your feelings. And so all of you angry people, understand that sometimes anger is real. Sometimes there's a place for it, but it's really pretty rare. Most often there's a sad, scared, hurt, um, something of that nature under it, some kind of a vulnerability or insecurity that you're using anger to... um, to, to make you look puffed up and bigger than you are. That's a, that's a really a lot of the reason why we get angry. It, it sends all the adrenaline to puff us up and make us look scary and big, and we try to scare off the offending emotion. And so confident people, people that have strong emotional intelligence, they're able to share the underlying feeling with people, be vulnerable, and understand that it's going to be reciprocated. And if not, they are still valuing that integrity enough that they're willing to do it. Does that make sense, all of that kind of in a nutshell? So let's talk about some things that you can do to become more emotionally intelligent. And and I've got to say, there, there's I've got to get used to this. The camera is, I'm looking straight into the camera, but the viewer of the camera is over here. And so when I look at me on the viewer, I'm giving you a profile shot, which I'm really kind of, aware of how, wow, a good thing I'm on radio, but now you can see me on radio profile shot. So I keep like looking over with my eyes and I think that looks creepy on there. So I'm going to try to just forget looking at me over there and just look at the camera. We've already spoke about one arena of um, emotional maturity. The second arena that you can really build is your confidence level. And, and I know this is an overused quote, but I'm going to give you a quote. Are you ready for a quote? Henry Ford said this, and there's a lot of people that are not a fan of Henry Ford, but I'm kind of a fan of Henry Ford. He streamlined an entire industry, and whatever else he did around the shenanigans around it, I'm not sure. But the, what I do know is that he had this massive, massive purpose, and he went about achieving the tenets of that purpose. And so he was a very confident person. He outlined his purpose in steps almost like an assembly line, and in some cases, literally an assembly line, and then marched his purposes to an end result that was what he wanted, and it worked exactly as he stated. 
And so one day he told his workers, he said, hey, you know what? Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. And he wasn't meaning the surface bragging um, bravado. What he means is that deep knowledge, I can do this versus that deep knowledge, I don't think I can do it. I remember one day in Idaho, out on this farm, and I've worked this farm every summer for the first half of my life. It was crazy. Sometimes I loved it, sometimes I hated it. And and I liked to, I, I've always been really good at jumping, jumping over things. And and there's this barbed wire fence. I mean, barbed wire fences is this, this string of wire, and it's got these little sharp barbs on it that's supposed to catch you and hurt you. Like if you're a sheep or a cow trying to climb through the wires, it'll scratch you and you'll back up and stay in the field. And and for me, it would have just like ripped my leg open and made me bleed. So I was going to jump this fence. And it was a pretty tall fence. And, and my cousin and my brother both said, you can't jump that fence. I knew I could. And I jumped the fence. I made it just fine. And they could not believe it. Now, here's what I want to share with you about that. My cousin, Mike, who was with me, was a better athlete than me. He could probably jump higher than me. But he got it in his mind that, that would, there's barbed wire on that. I'm not going to, and that's a little too high. So he decided he couldn't do it. And so he didn't. And that's significant because, and I'm not suggesting that it's all about physical athletics, but I'm saying that it's anything that you really deep down believe you can accomplish, you'll likely accomplish that. Anything deep down, you really start out thinking, I'm going to try this, but I don't think I can do it. You're wasting your time because you, you'll sabotage and it won't work. And we're going to talk in a little while about when things fail because it isn't a perfect science. We will fail, but even failing can turn into a success if you have the right attitude, if you have that, that sentiment override, that positive sentiment override. I've been talking to my wife quite a bit lately about positive sentiment override. It's when you hear things and you automatically assume positive. But then the other side is equally true. There's people that get caught up in this when they listen to something and, and hear it come in. They encode it automatically negative, like there must be something negative or affront, an affront to me with that. And so the idea behind confident people is they believe they can get things done. They believe that they're 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 able to um, work through any hurdle or any roadblock to their purposes and, and plow through and get things done. And they also have this understanding that it is for the good of the group or person that they're doing this service for or themselves. And so that's really kind of a key. They've got to believe that, that it is a worthwhile project and that they can actually do it. So mentally tough people are confident. They're not in doubt. They're not skittish. And I've got to tell you, whenever they doubt something, they just research and put their doubts to rest. And so that's a real key to confidence. The key to confidence is to not be pulled around, to not be tossed to and fro by the wind of every um, change that goes on out there, but to confidently move forward with an eye single to what your purposes are and continually assess for the result desired and then move towards the completion of the project carefully but surely. 
And that's what confident people do. You know, another thing that gets in the way of your confidence, and this is point number three, this is um, a radio show we did about uh, oh, three years ago, and I'm going to just uh, bring up that. Do you remember negaholics? There are people that are just toxic. They're negaholics. And it seems like these people have this attitude of um, uh, they, they want to exhaust you to death. They want to frustrate you. They, they, they're chronically bringing negativity. They're chronically bringing uh, toxic feelings into the relationship. They're chronically, uh, they almost like they always see you and turn you into the enemy. And, and even if they completely derail a, a mentally tough person or a confident person, a confident person can keep toxic people neutralized. They can keep negative people neutralized. And it's really done by not buying in. So let's say come, somebody comes up and, and you know, I'm, I'm just out there with the guys and some guy walks up. And you guys have probably been in this situation sometimes. And, and he starts making uh, anti-wife jokes. He, he said a toxic person would do this. They'd walk up and say, oh, so you guys all got away from your ball and chains too? Well, it's not very often us men get to get together and leave behind the, uh, you know, the fun suckers that just uh, kind of ruin the evening and, and then laughs, <laughs> kind of like the, it's culturally hypnotized into us that we all have a ball and chain and that it's just priceless when we can get together without our wives and have a man's night or a boy's night. If you join in because maybe you want to like not offend or not hurt his feelings and say, yeah. Yeah, is able to escape too. And, and now all of a sudden you're equally toxic. But what if you looked at the person and laugh and say, yeah, I know what you mean, except for I really kind of love hanging out with my wife and, and I'm hoping this boy's night goes fast because I can't wait to get home. And you just kind of like smile and diffuse it. But you send a, a, you launch a message that you're not angry, that you're not um, confronting the person really but that you're also not going to buy in on any cultural hypnosis of, you know, let's, let's be anti-wife, let's be anti-marriage, let's be anti, let's be mean to them when, when they're not here to, 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 vent, to defend themselves. And, and it's kind of like that, or, or the, uh, the, the person that walks up and tells a, a lewd joke or a dirty joke. And, and it might be that it's okay to just halfway through the joke, just put your oh, hey, whoa, we don't tell jokes like that. We better screen that. And you can do it fun. You can do it a little bit confrontive, but let it be known that you're not going to drive down these toxic roads that um, that really are, are cancerous to relationships. They're cancerous to your relationships with the guys that you're hanging out with because now it's negative energy, negative synergy. You're, you're launching with a foundation of, of all of this um, um, ridicule or this snarky attitude towards your better halves, your spouses. And it's also offensive because you wouldn't live with integrity and take that and, and, and say all those things in front of your spouse. You know, and so what you do is you, you have to hide that part of you that joins in on those things and hope that your spouse doesn't find out or hope that you know, your good friends don't find out. And so it's really just best to, to neutralize toxic people. Um, there's times when there's toxic people that just try to goad you into uh, to being angry, to goad you into a fight. They, they might lie to you. They might uh, ridicule you. If you can keep your emotions in check and mentally tough people will never respond poorly to toxic people, mentally tough people respond to toxic people by um, asking a question or, um, you know, when they ridicule you, you say, so why do you think that about me? Like what's going on there? And it, it can neutralize it. It can take it and, 
put them kind of in their place without being angry and there's no use punching them in the nose because it's really not, it's not about that. It's not about, you know, taking them out. It's about neutralizing the toxicity. And pretty soon if they won't stop being toxic, they'll just stop coming around or they'll know that you're not the person they can do that with and so they'll just stop. So we've covered three. We've covered what is emotional intelligence, the emotional quotient, and it's and, and then we've covered uh, being confident, which is um, really important. The, uh, the the next thing we covered is is this whole idea of neutralizing the toxic people, the the negaholics in your life, and and not surrounding yourself with negaholism. And then the fourth thing that mentally tough people do, and this is one that's like really hard for a lot of people, and I, I like this in some arenas of my life and in other arenas, this one is one that I've really got to work on. And mentally tough people that have this really mature emotional intelligence quotient, they embrace change. You know, people that embrace change are literally people that um, are flexible. They're, they're able to allow a change of opinion to come into their life. They understand that... Um, being paralyzed by, by change isn't going to help anybody, even not even help themselves. It's, uh, in fact, being paralyzed to the change process is, is a major threat to being successful. It's a major threat to being happy. And so really what, what you want to do is that you, you need to form a literal action plan for making the change happen that needs to happen. And, uh, and there is times to say no. I get that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But you really must grow you can't be stagnant in this world. You really must grow. So change is inevitable. And so if you resist it, then you're really, um, you're, what you're really doing is just being close-minded. You're, you're closing your heart. You're closing your mind. You're not willing to take in new ideas. You're not willing to embrace anything that doesn't look familiar. And what if you did that and you never embraced brand new? You never really... Um, launched forward in a healthy way and, 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 and accepted some change and created a plan for the change process, think how much you would have missed in your life. Like think about the change that maybe was forced upon you. Um, did it end up being good? Sometimes it is. Now, what if you took control of the change in a sense? And what if you really embraced it and then created a plan to bring it into your life? Now you can phase change in. You don't have to like leap to change. And um, there's all kinds of things you can do. You can find the good in it have an open mind and then capitalize on the parts of the change that you really want to bring into your life. And, and really um, one great example of, of the, uh, the required change process is when you get married and I'm on a college campus doing a radio show. And a lot of you guys here on college campus are single and you're dating and you're looking for a partner. You're looking for a lover to spend the rest of your life with. And one of the things that will happen is you have two cultures coming together. So you've got, you've got um, both of you coming from different parenting styles, both of you coming from different places, different homes. Uh, you lived under different rooftops. And so you might come from completely different sides of a country. You might come from different countries. But no matter what, whether you live in the same town and did your whole life or whether you live in different continents, you are two very distinct cultures coming together. And, and I've told this story a whole bunch of times. It's just my Thanksgiving story. It's um, Thanksgiving at my wife's house. Was I, I remember the very first time, it was before we were married, 
and I uh, got invited to her house for Thanksgiving. And the first thing I noticed, I got to sit at the adult table because I'm the youngest in my family. And at our family Thanksgiving, I still had to sit at the kid table. But at her family, Chris and I sat at the adult table. And so we're sitting there and they're about ready to give the prayer. And now we come from very different cultures, my wife and I. And during the prayer, I picked up my fork because in the Eschler family culture, the minute amen is said, you start grabbing food and putting on your plate. And if you went slow, you, uh, you likely wouldn't get some of the food that you wanted. It would be gone by the time you got to it. And so you have to go kind of fast. And so you want to hit the first thing that you want really bad, or you want to hit something that you want, but maybe looks like there's not enough to go around. And if there's something you really, really want, but there's enough to go around, you might dive for the second best first. And so you're gauging all that with one eye open during the prayer, literally. And so that's where I come from. Chris comes from a, a place where they do something radically different. It was amazing. It was like odd to me. But then I found, wow, this is kind of cool. And, and, and her dad said, amen. And I'm really not wanting to leap first because I didn't want to be totally impolite. But I'm ready. And nobody moved. Said amen. Nobody moved. And then somebody picked up a plate and started passing it around. They did this thing. It's weird. They call pass the plate to the guy next to you. So you pick up something, take a little bit off. You look around, make sure you leave enough for everybody else, and you pass it to the next person. And I'll be darned if every plate didn't get around and everybody got a little bit of everything and plenty, and it worked. I didn't think it would work. I thought, oh, no, what about those people that are you know kind of last on this line and some of the plates they'd send one way around the table and some the other way, and it all everybody was mindful of the other people and left plenty, and then we had to even seconds on some of the things, and that never happened in the culture I came from. So as you can see, two very different cultures. Now, what if on our first Thanksgiving as a married couple, I'm thinking it's every man for themselves, and she's thinking, now let's politely pass the, uh, the plate around. You see how two cultures will clash, and if I'm not willing to change or she's not willing to change, then we'll fight. That's how it works. So emotionally intelligent people are flexible and they work out a way that works for the relationship. So here's how I do it. And the other person says, well, here's how I do it. Now, emotionally immature people say, well, then you have a table and I'll have a table. And whoever wants to sit at my table will do it my way. And whoever wants to do it your way will sit at your table. That's emotionally immature. That's like, I'm going to take my toys and go home because I'm going to do it my way. And so a lot of people do that. I want to go in this door. Well, all right, go ahead. But I'm going to go around and I guess I'll find you later. See, that would be an emotionally immature thing to say if you're partnering up with someone. Emotionally mature couples say to themselves, all right, I've got my way. He's got his way or she's got her way. Let's find a third or fourth way that we were both totally enthused about. Does that make sense? Imagine if you are always searching for a whole other way to do things that is equally satisfying. It meets enough of your needs that you feel satisfied. And now you're both doing something together. That's a little bit of me and a little bit of you. And we found this place where we're incredibly happy because enough of our mandatory requirements were met that it's, it, it, that it works. Now, every now and again, it's going to require someone to just sacrifice. And every now and again, it's really healthy to sacrifice. But if you live this kind of a relationship, then it's more of an argument of it's my turn to sacrifice. No, I think it's my turn to instead of, Hey, I've done it twice in a row. It's your turn. So you don't keep track. You just kind of work and trust. 
you remember a moment ago when we were talking about uh, accepting change? Another thing that emotionally intelligent people to do, this is the fifth on my list, is they've learned to say no. This is an incredibly difficult thing for some people to do, this whole idea of saying no. Saying no um, can feel like you're going to be confronting or hurting or um, really making someone else fail if you say no. And, and saying no is really tough for some people. I, I'm all right with saying no in most things. There's a few things that I struggle with it a little bit, but uh, saying no is something that, that, that I can do pretty well. But I, I talk with people in my clinical practice that really struggle with saying no, and they struggle with the whole thought of disappointing people. And, uh, and as we go into this saying no, um, what I want to mention to you is that, uh, that, that this is Dr. Matt Eschler with a Southern Utah Counseling Experience merged recently with St. George Center for Couples and Families. Uh, we have a full range of therapy services and a full um, a full range of counselors to meet the needs of any issue or mood or disorder that you might present with. And we do marriage counseling. We do counseling with people that have mood disorders. We do counseling with, uh, with uh, young people with the geriatric community. And we've got people that are experienced and have expertise in all of those areas. We have a counselor that's been trained and is well-versed in the LGBTQ community and, and some of the issues that are resolving and revolving in that, uh, that community as well. And we've got um, persons there that uh, will be able to take you in and, and have an appointment with you immediately. If you give us a call at 435-688-1111, we'll uh, get you right in. Uh, again, that's uh, St. George Center for Couples and Families, uh, recently merged with a Southern Utah Counseling Experience. And so we're talking about saying no um, Dr. Matt Eschler is my name, my name, and part of saying no is um, the the ability to relax and know that you don't have time for something, and to explain that it's something that you're not going to do because of that is peaceful. And so, so imagine you've got. Um, eight things to do today and it's already a little bit overwhelming and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I've got this kind of mapped out. I can get these eight things done. And then somebody throws something in your lap that they really need you to do to add to your list, to know your schedule, to have it written down. And I always suggest managing and maintaining a written schedule. You can put it on your iPhone or your Android. You can have a paper planner. My generation had paper planners. Your gen the, the newer, younger generation seems to have everything on their, their iPhones or iPads. And so the idea behind the iPhone and the iPad is to, um, scheduler is to not map out every single hour so that you're completely inflexible, but to map out the mandatories of the day and to not have too many things to where you're overwhelmed all day, to have your day structured rationally so that you're getting things done that need to be done. You're able to say no to things that are like B-level projects and C-level projects. You're getting all your A-level projects done. And let's say somebody throws to you a B-level project and you need to say to them, look, today this is what I've got time for and this is it. But on Wednesday I could do that for you. And now you're putting that other person at choice and that feels peaceful. It's also okay to say, you know, there's just no way I'm ever going to get to that. I need to refer you to and, and give them a referral to someone else. And so that's another way of, of managing saying no. But mentally tough, tough people avoid phrases like, um, you know what, I don't think I can do that, dang it. Uh, or I'm not certain, but uh, maybe I'll try. 
See, all of those are just weak softeners. You know you're not going to do it, but you're trying not to hurt their feelings. But what happens is, is like at least with me, I know, is when I hear, ooh, I'm not certain I can do it, but yet they take the project with them, then I'm counting on them to get it done. And they say, well, I told you I wasn't certain. And then I say, but you didn't give me a chance to go somewhere else. You just took it. You took it on. And so I, I waited. And so really, it's wise to get clear and, and be very direct. Like, I will not be able to get to that till Wednesday. Or I'm not going to be able to ever do that, but I've got a referral for you for someone that I think might have the time. See, the idea behind being mentally tough, mentally and tough is is about delaying your own gratification as well as saying no to others when they put stuff upon you or ask your, your help to do stuff. And, and instead of letting your ego take over, and when your ego takes over, you want to please everybody. And when your ego takes over, you want to do everything for everybody. And when your ego takes over, you take on way too much work and you get yourself way too overwhelmed. And the next thing you know, you're not doing the important things in life because you're too busy doing the less important things in life because you're too busy pleasing everybody and not saying no. And so it's really, it's, it's, you can see already that it's a whole bunch better to learn the art of saying no when it's appropriate to say no. So looking at the time, I'm going to go just a little bit quicker. Number six, mentally tough people do this one. So I'm going to toss this to you because this is a risky one. This is one that um, you walk kind of a thin line unless you're really in touch with yourself. But fear, in most circumstances, is going to be a source of regret. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Fear is a source of regret. Fear being a source of regret, what I mean is the things that you tried to do when you really gave it your all and you were confident, you went in there with a can-do attitude and it just didn't work, feels much better than to have never swung the bat. Feels much better than... Man, I was afraid, so I sat down. I didn't even try. And then for years, you can look back and really wish you'd have gave that thing a try. I could really wish I'd have tried that because I was right there on the precipice and I was right there where I could have just, I could have just gave it my all. And what if it worked? See, one of the worst things that can happen is allowing yourself to literally die inside by paralyzing yourself with fear so that you never step out of your comfort zone. It might be the person that, that never steps up into leadership because they're afraid people won't follow, or they never step up into a confident role because they're afraid that, that they're going to be put in their place or they're going to fail. Or, you know, what if, uh, you, you remember the Michael Jordan quote, and I don't know the quote exactly, but it's, um, it's, like, it's like I have uh, 26 times I've been given the game-winning shot and missed. Um, I've, I've made over 3,000 shots in my career. I've missed over 3,000 shots in my career. 26 times I was given the, the, the game-winning shot, and I missed. I've tried over and over and over again and failed, and that's why I succeed. I mean, that's a literal truism there where if you're not out there failing a bunch, if you're not out there really digging in and going to work on stuff, how are you going to succeed at anything? Now, remember earlier we said confident people step out and have a can-do attitude, and if, if they think they can, they can. Well, there's times where you think you can, and it just doesn't work out. And so you shift just a little bit to the left, and you accomplish it different. 
it's like um, sticky notes. You know those little yellow sticky notes, those little yellow paper. You pull it off and you can stick it to a surface, and it isn't. Well, they were trying to make a glue that would stick to any surface and never come off. And instead, they found this glue that would stick to any surface and peel right off and leave no mark. And so they made sticky note paper. A whole industry now, a whole multi-billion-dollar industry, just because of a failure that they turned to a success because of their confidence. Well, if we let fear of failure paralyze us to where we never step out of our comfort zone, then we're that 26, 27-year-old that's still living in our uncle's basement playing video games because we know how to do that. But I'm not going to go out into the world and try to get a job that's you know pays that pays well. I'm not going to try to get a college degree. I'm not going to try to get a, a an internship where I can learn a trade. Fear blocks people from failing, but then fear is how you literally die inside and then fail while living. And and so part of dealing with fear is knowing that you need to go out there and take a good solid swing and knowing that you're going to make a mistake. And so here's how I want you to handle those mistakes. And this is for those that are afraid of fear. It's, I'm going to give you a three-step process to handle blowing it. So you go out there and something just plain doesn't work. Like you go out there to, uh, to, um, to get a job and you really want a job at, in this certain industry. And so you go out and apply for that job and you give it everything you got. You give the interview all you've got. And, and then it just doesn't work and they hire someone else and you get that email that says, I regret to inform you that we have found someone more qualified. Even the email kind of puts you down. And instead of thinking to yourself, see, I shouldn't even have tried. That was painful. Why did I even bother? What I want you to do is triple down. I want you to say to yourself, you know, my problem is on this failure is uh, I only went to one place and I put all my eggs in one basket. So you dwell on your failure that long. So first step of, of, of dispelling fear is to go out and do it. Go out and just do it. Don't go out and just try it. Go out and just do it. When you fail, don't dwell on your mistake, but think about it. What happened? What was the mistake? So I only went to one job opening. I'm going to go to 95 job openings in or around the industry I want, and I'm going to apply at all of them. And if I do everything I did for this one 95 times with 95 different businesses, I've got a 9,500 better chance of getting a job. I raise my uh, statistical balance of getting a job and, and being successful. See, that's what people that don't use fear to stop themselves do is they, they look at their mistake, they adjust, and then they carry on. And that's what I want to tell you to do. I want you to do that. I want you to think that, uh, that the, um, the idea of getting back up every time you get knocked down is a real one. The idea that if you, if you get knocked down a hundred times, then you're really due for a win. And, and if you analyze your mistakes in an honest fashion, I think I can promise you. Let me just think. Yeah, I can promise you. If you're honest about your mistakes and do an honest adjustment, you will eventually be successful. It will happen. If you lie to yourself or if you cover for yourself, if you're not emotionally honest with yourself, if you're not willing to really be humble and face, I've got to change this or that, I had one kid thinking about getting jobs, and it's, it's not the only arena, but he came in and he said, I've 
just went to another job interview and it just didn't go very well. And the, the, the kid smells really bad. And so I said, look, come into my office and sit down for a second. And I said, look, I know it's hot out there, but I got to tell you, when you walked in, I could smell you. And it's, it's like, if that's how you smelled when you went into to the job interview, it's off-putting. And I don't know what you're going to do about it, but that's one thing you probably have to address. You have to address staying fresh smelling. Now, I don't know if you left your house clean and it was just hot and you're walking around. If that's the case, you got to do less walking around before your interview. And if you know you've got to be out all day doing interviews, you've got to like jump into a Starbucks and cool off and then jump into a Target and cool off. But in between stops, you got to cool off a little bit and you got to like over deodorant something because there you go. And he said, man, I'm glad you told me because I didn't even know. Couldn't even smell myself. Nobody else told me. And so the idea is just be, he was an emotionally honest person. He's able to say, yep, I'm going to listen to you. I'm not going to just take offense. And I can make that little adjustment. And so that leads us to the number seven point of emotionally strong people. They embrace failure. They embrace it. Mentally tough people really say, okay, um, I'm in this box here creating something and it's not producing the result that I want. I'm not happy with this result. They don't double down and just do harder, go faster. They, they actually step back and they look for a breakthrough moment. They look through a breakthrough idea. They look for a, 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 any kind of a, a way to pave their way out of the box of failure to success. And, and all you need to do when you, when you embrace failure is really um, take a look at what actually is failing. Be emotionally honest about it. Don't be so sold on your idea that you're not willing to adjust it. But the breakthrough will come from feeling stuck and frustrated and really looking for what's causing that feeling, what's causing the breakdown, and then fixing it. And so looking outside of the box and bringing new resources in. So you've got this vision, this grand vision of what you want to do. And then once you identify the grand vision, you break it up into its parts and then you gather resources. And then those resources are put into action and you start producing a result. And then the result's failing. And so you look back at your resources. Maybe you need different resources. Or maybe you need, need to uh, change your vision from the very beginning and, and try it a little bit different. Do something a little bit different. And then go through and get the resources for that. And then put the resources to work. Get a result. And now the result is good. Do that more. So embrace failure and never look at failure as you're a failure. Separate you from your behaviors and from your actions and your, your, your uh, results and love you and change the behavior, change the resource mechanism, change the planning mechanism. And so you don't, you, you don't avoid failure by staying stuck. You jump right in and you go to work and you embrace the failures that come along and once you've done that, you're on the path to, to pure success. Now, we've covered half the points. And just like we talked about at the very beginning with the Ma Bell example, you remember the seven bits of information, you know, groups of three and four, that's how phone numbers are from that research that Ma Bell did. Um, I only covered seven, my time's up. So I'm going to tell you a heads up. Next time we meet, we're going to cover point number eight through 15. And we're going to start with not dwelling on mistakes. You remember I just spoke about embrace, really critically, embrace failure. Embrace the mistakes that you make. Learn them, learn from them, change, adjust, repent, 
do more of something, become more integritous, more emotionally honest, gather more resources. But no matter what, you're embracing it, knowing that when you're frustrated enough, you're going to see the pathway that paves your way to a breakthrough, and then you'll get to the result that you want. But there's also a skill on the other side of that is that you have to look at the mistakes that you've made long enough to learn a new way and then stop, let it go, take a deep breath, move forward. See, there's some people that have the rear view mirror on their glasses all the time. They're always looking backwards at their mistakes and saying, oh man, I'm bad. I blew that. I blew that. I blew that. Mentally strong and emotionally tough people think about their mistake long enough to repent or long enough to change, long enough to move themselves to a different level, different layer, and then they move forward. They, they, they've resolved the conflict that caused the mistake, and now they don't dwell on it any longer. It's gone. And they don't judge themselves by it any longer. They don't, they don't beat themselves up for it any longer. They don't revisit it just to feel pain every three or four days. Literally, they've thought it through, they've made the proper adjustments, and, they're, and then they're not willing to, to dwell on it. And so by keeping mistakes at a safe distance, that way you don't paralyze yourself by fear of failure because failure produces even more mistakes that will give you more reason to beat up yourself and give you more reason to do the self-loathing. And none of that's valuable. So that's, that's the, uh, the, the last point I'm going to make, and I'm going to make that point again at the beginning of the next show. I really do appreciate you for tuning in. I know that you uh, sacrificed to to be here for the entire hour. This is Dr. Matt Eschler. I'm with a Southern Utah counseling experience, and we have recently merged with St. George Center for Couples and Families, and uh, they're my partners there, and we uh, we have a full range of mental health counseling services. I specialize in marriage counseling and literally can help marriages and help people that are married together, people that are in relationship with each other, uh, build that mental, emotional intelligence to become mentally strong. Mentally mature and mentally strong people are better lovers. They're better partners. They have better sex. They have better communication. They do better at everything. And so I'm going to sign out and we will talk to you later.